What is up, listeners of the world? My name is Jalen Tully, and welcome to J Talks. wonderful listeners and thank you so much for tuning in to my 20th episode of J Talks. I am so excited to be here this week, not just because it's my podcast and I'm excited to be here every week, but I am especially excited to be here this week because the conversation conversations that we are going to be having this week are are conversations that I'm genuinely excited to have and that I think are so important. This week we are going to really reach some some substance in terms of what we're going to talk about. So again, I'm so excited to talk about what we're going to talk about this week. And I'm guessing by the title, you could already infer what the conversation is going to be about this week. But before I get into all of that, I do want to talk about something very, very shortly that I that makes me extremely disappointed in where we're currently at as a country. And I wanted to talk about this not only because it ties in with the overarching topic of this week's episode, but more than anything, one of the days in which this holiday is celebrated just passed. And so I I did want to just come on here and talk about it and share my opinion about this with you guys. So very quickly, I did just want to open this episode up with talking about the holiday that is celebrated and known as Confederate Memorial Day or Confederate Remembrance Day, depending on how you refer to it as. And if you don't know, Confederate Memorial Day is a holiday observed by Southern states, as I'm guessing you could have inferred, but it is a holiday observed by Southern states, usually on June 3rd. However, in some states, they do celebrate it on May 10th, and I will go into depth about those two separate dates and why there are two different days that the holiday may be celebrated on. But overall, it's a day to remember the more than a quarter of a million Confederate soldiers who died in military service, also known as, let's make a day to remember men who killed Americans for their rights to own slaves. The two different dates that this holiday could be celebrated on, May 10th and June 3rd, revolve around the Confederate States of America's president, Jefferson Davis. The June 3rd date of celebration is Jefferson Davis's birthday, actually, and that is more so the more popular date that it's celebrated on, However, the May 10th date is in remembrance of the day that Jefferson Davis was actually captured by Union soldiers and therefore subjected to criminal punishment. That date is celebrated much less by Southern states, but it is still celebrated by Southern states nonetheless, and obviously it's celebrated enough to the point where it was trending on Twitter and I felt a need to come on here and talk about it with you guys. All of these holidays were introduced to Southern states anywhere from 1874 to 1916, so as you can see, the introduction of these holidays were introduced decades after the Civil War actually ended. And I wanted to talk about this because not only, like I said earlier, does it tie in with the overarching theme of this week's episode, but in my in my sophomore year of high school, I actually did an English project on Confederate Remembrance and how, and how toxic and oppressive our relationship is with Confederate Remembrance and glorifying con- the Confederacy in the way that we do in modern American society. Um, the, the overarching theme of my project and the overwhelming research that I found all pointed to the fact that the majority of Confederate remembrance is not centered around remembrance. It's actually centered around oppression. And this ties into the fact that the, the holidays, the celebrations, the statues, the names of the military bases, the names of high school, elementary schools, and middle schools, all of those things were not introduced until decades after the Civil War ended. And this begs to ask the question of why were these things introduced decades after the Civil War actually ended? Why, if it was about remembrance, were these things not introduced to the public right after the Civil War ended or within a couple of decades after the Civil War ended? For example, I'll actually try and find a chart and link it below. I'll see if I can find one for you guys. But if you actually look at a a chart of when Confederate statues were introduced into this country and when they were built and erected in this country... There is a huge spike in the early in the early 20th century when the Ku Klux Klan was rebirthed and when the the movie The Birth of a Nation was created and if you don't know what that movie is I recommend you looking it up. You don't have to watch it. It's really disgusting to watch, but 
I, I recommend at least looking it up and seeing the premise of the movie because it is it it was relevant back then and it's super relevant to the the Confederate remembrance that centered around that time period as well. But there was a sharp boom during that time when that movie came out and therefore the Ku Klux Klan was rebirthed, but there was also a sharp uptake in Confederate statues erected around the time of the civil rights movement and when black people were fighting segregation and fighting for their civil rights, just such as voting. And this is, I made the point in my presentation and I made the point in my project that this is not a coincidence. White people and people who belong to the Confederacy, people who believed in the Confederacy, and people who agreed with the overarching racial undertones of the Confederacy, they knew what they were doing. They knew they were just reminding Black people of their subservient place in society. And this was done very in a very calculated way. And like I said, that was not only the point that I wanted to make in my project, but that was also the what I found in almost all of the research that I did was this this overwhelming point that white people were trying to further oppress and further subject black people to being reminded of their socioeconomic status in society by doing this, by erecting these statues, by glorifying the Confederacy and the people who fought in the Confederacy. And more than anything, it, it whitewashes our history and the atrocities that were committed, and in a way, it makes them more digestible for us, so we don't see the Confederacy as something that was as disgusting as it truly was. I mean, I'm gonna say it how it is, but Confederate soldiers were killing Americans. They were murdering American civilians, they were murdering American soldiers. I don't understand how, as Americans, we can look back on these people and say that they're people to be celebrated. To me, that is the utmost bastardization and whitewashing of our history that has probably ever taken place. And I think that it's disgusting that we not only allowed for it to happen in the first place, that but that we're still seeing it as something that's acceptable and appropriate today. I mean, imagine if there was a Nazi Remembrance Day in Germany. Imagine if Germany had an entire day centered around celebrating Nazi soldiers who died fighting the Second World War. Imagine if they had statues up of Hitler and they still allowed for the Nazi flag to be waved. We would look at Germany and we'd go, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you glorifying this? Imagine how traumatic that would be to descendants of Holocaust survivors or just Jewish people in Germany in general. That would be such an alienating thing to do. And we're able to look at that. And we're also able to look at how Germany teaches about the Holocaust. And to me, I think Germany does everything right. But if, if that was something they did, if they had a Nazi Remembrance Day, like I said, if they had statues of Hitler up, if they allowed for the Nazi flag to be waved to this day, and if civilians were walking around with Nazi flags on their trucks and on their shirts and on their, you know, houses, that would be seen as something extremely alarming from the outside world. But when we do it here, it's it's just seen as celebrating American culture. It's just seen as celebrating American history. And I wanna and I wanna make the point that we can learn about and educate ourselves on and participate in the growth from negative parts of our history without glorifying it. And that's the that's the issue with Confederate remembrance I have, is because we're unable to do that. We cannot seem to grow from or educate ourselves on Confederate history and the history of the Civil War and the history of slavery without glorifying all of that stuff. And that's where that's where people have an issue, that's where civil rights activists have an issue, that's where politicians have an issue, is because we shouldn't be glorifying people who murdered Americans. We shouldn't be glorifying people who owned slaves. We shouldn't be glorifying people who fought an entire civil war, the bloodiest war in American history, over their right to own slaves. And that actually ties in perfectly with the overarching theme of this episode, which is the current conversation and the current controversy going on about black history being taught in schools and being seen as a mandatory topic to be taught in schools. There is a current discourse about black history and lessons on systemic racism being taught in schools. And before I go in depth with this topic, because this is going to be the overarching theme of this week's episode, this is going to be the, the only thing I talk about this week, but I do want to leave you with a couple quotes before I continue talking about this topic, just to help you think about this topic in a different way, just to help you open your eyes a little bit before I delve in deeper into this topic. The first quote comes from an ancient African proverb, and it goes as follows. Until the lion learns how to write, all of the stories will glorify the hunter. I'm going to say it again for you guys. 
until the lion learns to write, all of the stories will glorify the hunter. Second quote comes from an Irish statesman, Edmund Burke, and it goes as follows. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The final quote I want to state for you guys, nobody really knows where it comes from. Um, people are thinking that it comes from, you know, a civil rights activist, um, possibly a feminist from the, early, from the early 20th century. But this quote states that when you are accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. I'm going to say it one more time for you guys. When you are accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. All right, now with those out of the way, I'm going to delve deeper into this topic, and we will be revisiting those quotes later in this episode as I'm wrapping it up, but I did just want to state those just so you'd have them in your head, just so you'd, you know, be thinking about something as I'm talking about this topic, and hopefully you'll be able to make some connections into why this is so important. Specifically, schools, politicians, and a lot of civil rights activists are fighting for the education of critical race theory in public schools, along with having topics like systemic racism added to the mandatory curriculum that teachers must teach to their students. There's really only one argument against this that has been shared on TV, online, and at school board and or administration meetings, and it consists of the radical left are indoctrinating our children into believing that America is an inherently racist country and that we need to apologize for being white. And I do just want to state that in reality, parents, politicians, and teachers are scared of what they don't know and or understand. And they don't want to have to have conversations with their kids or students that make them uncomfortable. Because yes, I will say it right now, these conversations are uncomfortable, which is why I'm talking about them on my podcast, which is centered around having uncomfortable conversations. I know this is a hard topic to broach. I know black history is not always easy to talk about. I know history about systemic racism is always difficult to talk about. I know these are not fun conversations to have, but we must have them. And I want to talk about this now, and I want to go into a more educational idea of why we need to have this conversation. I want to focus as little on like societal race as possible, if that makes sense, and I want to focus on why this is important in a historical context, and why this is important to our children, to the children who are being deprived of historically accurate information within their classrooms. So first I want to address why we learn history. Why is history a subject that's taught in school? Why do we sit down and have history classes about the world and the societies around us? Why is that something that we have to learn? And after thinking about this for a little bit, I, I, I figured out that there are three main reasons that we learn history in school. The first reason is to make connections between the events of yesterday and the events of tomorrow. When we're able to see how the events of yesterday bleed into the events of today and tomorrow, we're better able to not only make connections in other historical contexts, but we're also able to make connections in other subjects in general. But more than anything, history, I think, is the first subject in which we're actually forced to make connections like that, where we're actually forced to be introspective and retrospective enough to see the connections from yesterday and how they connect into the events of today. And by forcing children to do that, we not only promote those connectivities, we not only force children to make those connections, not only within the society around them, but within their own head. And we have more productive members of society. We have people who are going to be more conducive, more successful, and therefore more integral members of society. By having people who are able to make connections like that, you have people who will make better employers, you have people who will make better members of society, and you therefore have people who will make more educated, more intelligent, and more and people who are members of society who are more, more inquisitive about the society around them. Because they're able to not only ask the questions that make those connections, but they're able to make the connections for themselves. Two. We learn history to keep the memory of past events, past atrocities, and past individuals alive. I mean, learning history in school is how we know who George Washington was. It's how we know what Japanese internment camps were. It's how we know all of this stuff. And I think when I say this, everyone can agree that learning history is important because of that. Because we need to know our past. We need to know where we came from. We need to know how the events of yesterday have led to the events of today. 
We need to know how our country was founded and who founded it. We need to know who fought in the Civil War and why it was fought. We need to know who fought in the Second World War and the First World War and why those things were fought. We need to know about the Great Depression and the Spanish influenza outbreak of 1918. We need to know about those things because they are historically important to us. They are historically important to where we are today, and they are historically important to, uh, well, our history. So I think we can all agree that the most basic reason that we learn history is to learn history. We learn history to so that we don't forget history. We learn history so that we can remember history, and we can help make our children understand why history is important. Alright, the third, final, and possibly the most important reason that we learn history is because we need to be able to find a place for ourselves within our history. We as children and sometimes as adults need to be able to figure out our own socioeconomic position in society, and I feel like there's no better way to do that than to analyze our own history. Not only that, but I think it's also extremely helpful, especially to children, to understand how they got here. Obviously, they got here because of their parents, but how did their parents get here? How did their grandparents get here? How did their great-grandparents get here? Because America is a country of immigrants, because America is a country of people who have come from all over the world to try and settle here and create a better life for themselves, I think it's very, very important for us to understand where we come from and our lineage and what our ancestors had to go through in order for us to be sitting where we are today. And when you teach a whitewashed version of history, or when you teach history that is largely historically inaccurate, you are doing a humongous disservice to not only black kids and kids of color, but you're also doing a disservice to white kids. You, first, you're doing a disservice to black kids and kids of color because you're preventing them from seeing themselves in our history. By not teaching black history, or by teaching black history that's historically inaccurate, you, out of all people, I think are indoctrinating a very false belief into black children's head that they either weren't a part of this history, that either this country was built without them, and that they are not important to how this country has gotten to where we are today, which is largely untrue, or you are teaching them that their place in our history was very passive, which again is a very, very, very untrue. And on the flip side of that, when it comes to other children of color, when it comes to our relationship with Chinese people in our American history, when it comes to our relationship with Mexican people in our history, especially me Mexican immigrants, you are further also alienating them from their own history by not teaching about how important Mexican immigrants were to helping to win the Second World War, by not teaching about how and why Japanese Americans were forced into internment camps in the Second World War, you are cutting out crucial parts of these children's history. You are forcing them to ignore or to re-examine the history that they thought they knew and that they had accurately when they knew it. So that is the, that's the first disservice that you are doing to kids of color in this country. And on the other side of that, when it comes to white kids, you are also doing a huge disservice to white kids. Because by teaching them a whitewashed version of their history, by teaching them that, oh, Christopher Columbus discovered America, by teaching them to list off five good things about slavery or that slave masters were nice to their slaves, you are implementing a falsehood into these children's head. You are feeding them lies. You are allowing for these children to ignore and further isolate themselves from the privilege that they intrinsically have. And by doing that, you are not only isolating themselves from their privilege, but you are also inadvertently isolating themselves from doing things and committing to a, a way of being in this country that would make this country a more fair place for people of color and kids of color. You are allowing white children to ignore the pain, to ignore the struggle, and to ignore the strife that black people and other people of color have had to go through for hundreds of years for the entire existence of this country just in the effort to make them more comfortable and to make our history more digestible for them. So again, you're, you're doing a disservice to everyone by teaching historically accurate, inaccurate history. You're doing a disservice to everyone by teaching a whitewashed version of history. You are doing a disservice to everyone by teaching a version of history that might very well be more digestible, but it's a falsehood. It's a fallacy. It's not real. And more than anything, I want to also make this point you are preventing education from taking place in an educational setting. You are preventing children from learning the true stories of what happened in American history. You are preventing children from tapping in and having access to facts. 
You are preventing children from being educated in a place where education is supposed to happen and flourish and take flight. That, I think, is a bigger problem than children being indoctrinated, quote-unquote, to hate the country around them. And more than anything, I, wa I want to say this too, no one is teaching your child to hate America. Nobody is teaching your child that they need to be embarrassed or feel bad for the fact that they're white. And I feel like I feel like I also need to answer this question before I keep going. Is America a racist country? And I'm going to say it right here and I'm going to say it right now. No, America is not an intrinsically racist country. People of all colors, people of all shades, people of all nationalities and ethnicities are able to come to America and potentially build a better life for themselves. If America was intrinsically racist, that would not be true. However, if you are going to deny that America was built on racism, then I'm going to have some choice words to say, because that is a true statement. America was built on racism since the time that the first pilgrim ships touched down on this soil. America had racism festering in its core. Europeans came to this country and committed mass atrocities against the natives that lived here. We stole their goods. We murdered their children. We raped their wives. We committed genocide against an entire population of people. We killed hundreds of millions of Native Americans. And that is the first memory of America. That is the first interaction that Americans had with other people. That is how America was built. And while that wasn't how America was built, that was how America was founded. That was how America was created. It was created on genocide, it was created on racism, and it was created on an inability to understand people who were different than the settlers and the colonizers that came here. You fast forward a couple hundred years to 1619 when the first slave ships touched down in Virginia Beach. And again, racism was at the core of that. America was built on the back of slaves. America was built on the pain and suffering of black people. America's economy is the economy that it is today. It is the greatest economy in the world, the richest country in the world because of slaves, because we were built, because we spent the first 250 years profiting off of the free labor of black people. And again, that is an irrefutable fact. That is an, it is an irrefutable fact that slavery existed for over two and a half centuries. It is an irrefutable fact that factories and train tracks were built by slaves. It is an irrefutable fact that the agriculture that the white people in the society fed themselves with were built by black people. It is an irrefutable fact that slaves literally held this country together and held this economy together, and not only held the economy together, but built the economy from scratch. White people could not have built America. Europeans could not have built America if it wasn't for slaves. And that's not me saying that America is inherently racist, but that is me saying that America was built on racism. And by ignoring that, especially by ignoring that in our educational settings, by not acknowledging that in our classrooms, we are forcing Native children to look at the first Thanksgiving that was had as something that was proud and momentous and groundbreaking instead of something that ended with Native blood on Europeans' hands, on, on the hands of colonizers. We are forcing black children to undermine how much their ancestors did for our economy today. And not only that, but at the same time that we're doing that, we're not allowing for black people to profit off of the economy that their ancestors built. And I think that you are lying to yourself if you truly and genuinely think that all of that, that all of what we're forcing Native children and black children to understand about the foundations of American history if you truly think that all of that is more, is less of an injustice than forcing our white children and your white children to acknowledge the atrocities of our past, then you are living a very delusional life and you are living a very out-of-touch life and you're most likely also living a very privileged life. Forcing white children, forcing your children, forcing people in general in this country to acknowledge the effects of racism and the reality of racism has never had a negative effect on the society around us. We pay, and I mean we as in the taxpayers, the taxpayers of this country pay for racism every single day. 
The, the city of Minneapolis had to pay out a $27 million settlement to the family of George Floyd because he was killed at the hands of racism. We are paying for that. The 2008 housing crisis, that happened because of racism. That happened because of redlining. That happened because a black family making over $100,000 a year is much more likely to be given a subprime mortgage loan than a white family making under 35 k And because of that, black people were given subprime mortgage loans at a much higher rate when they didn't deserve them. And so, when the housing market crashed, black people suffered astronomically, and we had banks having to pay out millions, billions of dollars in settlements to these families that they gave subprime mortgage loans to because of inherent racism. We see the effects of this everywhere. You cannot turn around and look at any aspect of society without there being some form of racism embedded in it. And, with that being said... You can't look at the racism embedded in that aspect of society without also there being a financial, monetary, societal, or political cost to every other American in this country. We pay, like I said, we, we literally pay money out of our own pockets to supplement racism in this country. We wouldn't have to do that anymore if we were more open and more accepting to teaching racism in our schools and helping children understand how the effects of slavery, how the effects of redlining, how the effects of segregation and legal segregation have bled into the society that we live in today. I've told you guys so many times that I live in a very white town. It's not a secret. And as I'm sure you could infer by that fact, I, I also went to a very white high school. I, I actually went to very white schools in general. In my 12 years of education, I had one black teacher. I had no black teachers in elementary school. I had no black teachers in middle school. And I had one black teacher in high school. And it wasn't even just I had that teacher because I did. But he was the only black teacher in, this, in the schooling system that I went to. It wasn't even like he was the only black teacher I had. He was the only black teacher in the entire school district. However, there was one teacher that I had that quite honestly, I would go through my 12 years of schooling again if it meant that I would have him for the few semesters that I had him in high school. He made it that worth it for me. The effect that he had on me in terms of how he taught his classes, in terms of the conversations he had with me, and in terms of everything else he did for me in general, were so profound that I genuinely feel comfortable saying that I will never forget this man for the rest of my life. He was, like I said, he was a history teacher. He taught, I had him for a European history class. I had him for my economics class and I had him for one other class. What was it? I, I completely forget, but I had him for another class as well. And I feel like this is also a very important point to say. He was white. He was in, he was an elderly white man. He actually just retired last year. Good for him. I mean, I, I really am not excited to see how much the schooling system and how much the children who go through that schooling system suffer because of his absence but he taught for decades and he loved teaching and it was time for him to retire and I, I can only hope that he's living out his retirement as as happily as he can um but with that being said like I said he he was an older middle-aged white man and to to ha to see someone like that to have someone like that in my life who was still so educated who was still so in touch and in tune with the different people around him and with the society and world around him, like I said, had an absolutely profound effect on me. And he did, he did way more for me than just teach me about history. I, <laughs> I, I will probably talk about it someday, but I really just did not like high school. That's part of the reason why I graduated early. And I hadn't gone down to have a meal in the lunchroom and to have a lunch in the lunchroom since my sophomore year. And he was a teacher that I'd just go to his room and have lunch with him and just talk to him and just tell him not only about, you know, what I was dealing with or about my day or just vent to him, but we'd also talk about like social and political issues. We'd have conversations because I was also in high school for the entirety of Trump's presidency. So that was also something that like we would talk about in conversations that we would have. But like I said, he just, he did so much for me beyond the what he taught me in the classroom. He did so much for me beyond what he did for my education and what he did for expanding my worldview. And I'll, I'll, I'll definitely probably talk about him and what he did for me someday. But right now, I really just want to talk about one story that he told me in particular.
To give a little bit of backstory in the story, I obviously, as you could infer by how I was just talking about my education, I had a very whitewashed education. I went to a very white high school, which meant that nine times out of ten, the history lessons that I would learn would be catered towards the white kids in my classroom because chances are every single time I was in a classroom setting, I was the only black person or person of color in that room. So obviously the lessons would be catered towards the white children. And because of that, I was very dissatisfied with the education that I was getting, especially in, in my history classes. So I would, I would, I would go and I would read other books and I would find other sources and I would read news articles and I would read journal entries and I would learn about the things in the classroom that I knew I was being deprived of learning. And then I would come back into the classroom and I gotta say I was kind of an asshole, but I would come back into the classroom and I would purposefully ask questions about these things that I would do my research on in my free time and force my teachers to have these conversations with me and have these conversations with the students. And I was doing that about redlining um, for, for a little bit because I, I remember learning about redlining, I think in my free time or someone mentioned it in a classroom or something and I did my own digging and I was I was disgusted obviously with with redlining and it, no more than anything I was confused because I was like how is it possible that a black person who makes over $100,000 a year is more likely to be given a subprime loan than a white person who makes under $35,000, which is a fact, by the way. How is it possible that black people who want to look at houses within their tax bracket are only being showed houses in black neighborhoods and not being showed houses in white neighborhoods that better exemplify and correlate with their tax bracket? All of that didn't make any sense to me, and it didn't make sense to me how Certain neighborhoods that are predominantly black get lower funding. They get lower funding for schools. They get lower funding for community outreach programs. And overall, they are widely ignored. They are widely seen as problem areas. And this was more than anything, this was the first time that I really came to grips with the fact that legal segregation is a thing. Not only is it a thing, but it is supported by our federal government. It is supported by our economy and it is supported by white people in this country without them even acknowledging it. So I did my own looking into redlining and I walked into my class the next day and I was like, I'm going to talk to him about this because not only is this a conversation that I feel like needs to be had, but he is the absolute right person to have this conversation with. And I forget, I, I completely forget what we were talking about. I forget, honestly, I forget what class I had with him actually, but I remember we were talking about something and it was something that I could easily like ask a question about redlining and like without it, like totally derailing the class or so I thought. So I, I asked, I was like, why don't we talk about redlining? Why is this something that's ignored? Or I asked another question and then brought up redlining as an example. And I was like, like, why don't we talk about redlining? Why don't we talk about the fact that legal segregation is, is prevalent and it's ignored and it's accepted? Why don't we talk about this? He kind of like got ready to talk. Like he kind of just like sighed for a minute, not in an exasperated way, but he sighed as in like, this is, this is it. This is a time when I'm going to have to revisit my past and tell a harrowing story. He sat down on an empty desk that wasn't being filled by a student and he looked at me and he said, this is something that I'm so glad you brought up because it's something that actually was the reason as to why I moved to New York with my family when I was a child. This was the entire reason that my family upped and moved and altered their entire life to move to a completely different state and start completely different lives. He's like, this is something that even I as a white man was affected by. And this is something that I as a white man will remember for the rest of my life because of the interactions and experiences centered around redlining and how it personally impacted me. Um, my, my teacher... I, for, I forget where he lived originally. He lived in a more southern state, like a, like Pennsylvania, Virginia, New Jersey, somewhere around that area. I completely forget what state it was, though, and I apologize for not remembering that. But he, he talked about it, and he talked about how he, both of his parents were very educated, both of his parents had very good paying jobs, so they did live in an upper middle class neighborhood. And this was in the 60s. He was a child. He was in middle school, no older than 10 or 11 and he, like I said, he lived in a predominantly white, all white actually, upper middle class neighborhood. And one day, a black family moved into the neighborhood. A black family moved into the town just a couple houses down from where they lived. My teacher went on to say that, you know, of course his parents were not racist. His parents were not bigots. They thought that segregation, they thought that the civil rights movement was necessary. They thought that segregation was disgusting. 
And his parents taught him from a very young age that you respect people, you play with people, you are nice to people regardless of how they look and regardless of what society tells you is, is or isn't okay. So my teacher and his sister, who were children, like I said, he was no older than 10 or 11. His sister was younger than him. The, the black family that moved into the neighborhood had kids that were around their age. So they'd invite the kids over. They'd go over to their house, play in their backyard. The other kids would play in their backyard. My teacher said that he, he started to notice things. He started to take note of people would throw garbage at the black family's house People would spray paint slurs and death threats on their walls and on their windows and on their doors. People would throw bricks into their windows and rocks into their windows. People would drive past in cars and scream death threats and scream slurs at them. Um, the Black family was only there for a couple of months before they ended up being driven out and had to find somewhere else to live. And my teacher said that once him and his sister started to play with the Black children of that family they started to get the same treatment as well. They started to have rocks and bricks thrown through their windows. They started to have their house and their property spray painted. They started to have garbage thrown at their homes and thrown at them. They had, people would throw like dog poop on their lawns and at them. People would, again, call them racial slurs. People at school stopped playing with him. He, he lost a lot of friends. Family members would stop coming to their home. Friends would stop coming to their home. Neighbors would stop coming to their home. They got ostracized by their community. And uh, this is actually a kind of funny part of the story. But one day my teacher's father was so sick of it that he actually got like a, like a two by four, like a piece of wood, nailed nails through it and put it right in front of the, the fence that would lead into their backyard because people kept on breaking into their backyard and like, you know, leaving stuff there and vandalizing their property and, you know, destroying parts of their home. And so my, my teacher's father left this piece of wood there with the nail sticking out and the next morning he came out and there was blood on it. Someone had tried to break into their backyard and stepped on the piece of, the piece of wood and there was blood all over. I'm guessing that, you know, the, the nails just completely embedded themselves in their foot and obviously there was blood everywhere and my teacher's father said it was it was one of the most satisfying things he's ever done or seen like it was it was just nice to know that someone finally got to taste their own medicine they didn't last there longer than a month um longer than the black family did who moved out and that was when my teacher's parents made the decision that they couldn't they couldn't stay somewhere like this because not only were they in a more southern state but they were in a very red area. Obviously, they were in a white upper middle class neighborhood, usually not in an environment that is very welcoming to ideas of equality. And as you can see by how they treated the black family that moved there, it's it's very obvious how the people in this town felt. So that was when his family decided to pack everything up and move their children to New York, a very blue area, a very blue state. And Ever since then, they, they lived in New York, and that was where they resided. They found new and well-paying jobs, and they they just they lived their life there. After my teacher finished telling that story, nobody said anything. I, I think everyone was trying to process that. Because, I mean, my, my teacher, you know, my teacher's on the older side. You know, obviously, he retired last year, so he's definitely not a young guy, but he was still alive, and he experienced that when he was just a couple years younger than we were segregation and racism and hatred and bigotry, these are not things that have left. These are not things that have gone by the wayside. And he made that prevalent in his story. This was a mere 50 years ago. And, you know, obviously, you know, I, re I responded and, you know, we started to have a little bit of a conversation about it. But everyone around me, like the tension in the room was unbearable. You could cut it with a knife. And I think part of that was because I was, like I said, like I said before, I was the only black person in that classroom. And because of that, I think I was the only person who could internalize something like that because I, I was the only person who had interacted with racism like that before. I, w I was the only person who had, in who had been forced to interact and stare at the face of racism head on. And because of that, like I said, I was the only person in the room who was probably able to internalize it or compartmentalize it. Nobody else said every, anything. Everyone was silent. Nobody contributed anything to, anything to that conversation because I think a large part of it is because they could not internalize it. They could not stomach this being a reality. They could not stomach hearing someone who experienced this just a mere 50 years ago. 
They could not stomach the fact that their parents, that their grandparents probably have same experiences like this or were the perpetrators in experiences like that. And even though, unfortunately, I think a lot of my, I think a lot of the white students in that classroom kind of took that conversation with a grain of salt, even though it was uncomfortable at the time, even though it was very tenuous at the time, I think they kind of took that with a grain of salt and a lot of them probably don't think about it. I think about that conversation at least once a month, probably once a week. I tell that story to people as often as it comes up and as often as I can. I think about that all the time. And I think about how my teacher took the time out of his, his class time, out of the time when he was supposed to be teaching us other parts of his curriculum. And he told me that story. He, he took the time to relate a traumatic and unfair and an extremely prejudiced story in his life. And he took the time to tell us that story because he thought that it would, it would benefit us more than it would hurt us. And I, like I said, looking back four years later, I can genuinely say that it definitely did because I, I will remember that story for the rest of my life. And that, that is why it is important to teach black history in schools. Because I know for a fact that, you know, even, even if there was, even if half the kids in that classroom walked away from that story and never thought about it again, I know for a fact that other children in that classroom, other children who have heard that story probably remember it as prevalent as prevalently as I do they probably are as touched and as impacted by that story as I am to this day and even though that was a very personal story that he told even though that was a story from his own life and his own experience as a white man in this country he did in a way open the floor up for black people he in a way did give black people a voice in that conversation because that story was about racism. That story was about racism perpetuated against black people. That story was a firsthand experience in how redlining isn't just systemic and systematic. It's also perpetuated by individuals. It's also accepted by individuals. And if we don't have it in ourselves to teach these lessons to our children, to tell these stories to our children, if we don't have it within ourselves to force white people to come to grips with this reality that black people have to face, nothing is going to get better. Racism is still going to be as prevalent as it was yesterday. Racism is still going to be as prevalent as it was 60 years ago when that family was driven out of its home. Racism and the negative effects on it that it has on black people and people of color in this country are never going to go away. If we are unable to accept and learn from the ugliness of our past. And I'm not asking you to be scarred by these stories. I'm not asking you to apologize for your whiteness. I'm not asking you to hate this country, and I'm most certainly not asking you to be indoctrinated by liberal views. I'm asking you to devote a small fraction of your educational experience. I'm asking you to open up the floor in your classrooms to discussions about black struggle. I'm asking you to open yourselves up to conversations about systemic racism. I'm asking you to ask the questions that are uncomfortable to ask and to listen to the answers that are uncomfortable to hear. That is the only way we're going to be able to break down the cavernous divides that we have in this country between black and white. That is the only way that black people are going to be able to see justice and that's the only way that white people are going to be able to stop hearing about race is when we have the conversations and we center conversations around growth and around growing from our past. There's a Malcolm X quote that I want to share with you guys. It's, it's probably my favorite Malcolm X quote ever. And for the record, I love Malcolm X. He, he, in my head, is probably the most prominent and most progressive and the civil rights leader that probably had the most relevant message. He is my favorite civil rights leader. He's my favorite black activist in history. I absolutely look up to Malcolm X. He's an idol to me. And this is my favorite quote that he has ever said. And he, he said that if, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out three inches, that's not progress. If you pull it out six inches, that's not progress. If you pull it out all the way, that's not progress. Progress is actively aiming to heal and stitch the wound that you created by putting the knife in my back nine inches. He's like, America won't even acknowledge that the knife is there. And that is, that's racism. That is, that is our, that is our American relationship to racism.
we are not even willing to acknowledge that it's real. We are not willing, even willing to acknowledge that we stuck this knife in the back of black people. And we can't even heal the wound until we pull the knife out. And like I said, we are not even willing to acknowledge that it's real and that that knife is there. So how are we going to be able to move past this? And how are we going to be able to progress as a society and stop having these uncomfortable conversations and stop getting into these online battles and controversies when we won't even acknowledge the reality of this? I see a lot of people talking about how oh, my child is too young to hear these conversations. My child is too young to have these conversations about race. It's not fair that my child has to have these conversations. It's not fair that my child is going to be forced to be uncomfortable in their classroom because of these lessons about racism that, you know, po politicians and civil rights activists are saying that need, to, that need to happen in these classroom settings. And to that, I want to say, I was seven years old the first time I was called a nigger. I was seven years old and grocery shopping with my mom when I was called a nigger for the first time. If I'm not too young to experience racism, then you're not too young to learn about it. And honestly, that's the least you could do. The least you could do if I have to experience being called a nigger at seven years old, if I have to experience being called a nigger out of moving cars, having people whisper it under their breath when they pass me on the sidewalk, having white women cross to the other side of the street and clutch their purses to me towards them when they see me, if I have to be followed in stores and asked to show my receipt at Walmart every single time I go, the least you could do is lend an ear. The least you could do is ask your children to listen in their classrooms. The least you could do is fight for comprehensive lessons on systemic racism to be taught to your children. That is literally the bare minimum that we are asking you to do. We are asking you to send your children to school and have them learn about what black people have to deal with every single day. That's the bare minimum. And for the record, your children wouldn't have to go to school and learn about racism if you were having these conversations at home. The entire reason that this is a conversation, the entire reason that we as black people, that we as politicians, that we as civil rights leaders feel a need to introduce the concept of critical race theory being taught in schools is because you as white parents are not having the necessary conversations with your children. It's because you as a parent are ignoring the reality that black people have to face in this country each and every day and you are okay allowing your child to ignore it in the same way that you have. But look where ignoring it has gotten us. $27 million being paid by taxpayers to George Floyd's family. More names than I can even count, more names than I can even remember of children, of mothers, of sons, of fathers, of grandmothers being murdered by police. Black people to this day still being given some prime loans at an astronomically higher rate than their white counterparts. Black people still being followed in stores. Black people still being harassed on the streets. Black people still being murdered, brutalized, violated, threatened because of the color of their skin. Black people still being unable to use their real name on job applications. Black people still being denied ample amounts of opportunity that are permitted and are given to their white counterparts, even though they have the same credentials. America may not be an intrinsically racist society, but it sure as hell does profit off of racism. And it sure as hell still does profit off of the suffering of black people. And until we are willing to have these uncomfortable conversations in our classrooms, until we are willing to teach the youth of today to be better adults of tomorrow, these will still continue to be controversies. These will still continue to be uncomfortable conversations. And these will still continue to be realities that black people face. So again, the least you could do is listen. I want to revisit our quotes from earlier, and I want to kind of go in depth as to why they're relevant here in case you, you know, have gone through 50 minutes of listening to me talk and are still confused, which is okay. I know they were kind of, I know a couple of them were, you know, kind of uh, leaps and bounds from completely being comprehensive to this week's episode. But the first one, until the lion learns how to write, the story will always glorify the hunter. This is an African proverb, like I said, that odes to the fact that until the hunted learn how to write, until the hunted learn how to speak for themselves, the story will always glorify the hunter. 
history has been written by white people because white people have always been triumphant. White people have always won the wars. White people have always been the colonizers. White people have always been the prevailing race, which means that history has always been told by the white man. History has always been told from the white perspective, and it's very easy to whitewash history when you're always the victor. It's very easy to say that, oh, history's not that bad. Oh, history's not that unjust. Oh, history's not that prejudiced. Oh, history's not that awful when you're the one that is always benefiting from the historical events that have taken place. And unfortunately, that is true for white people. White people have always been the prevailing race. White people have always been the people who have benefited from colonization, who have benefited from looting countries of their natural resources. White people have always been the race that has benefited from all of the negative things that black people and people of color have to go through. I'm sure if we went to Libya... I'm sure if we went to West Africa, I'm sure if we went to Southwest Asia and heard the stories of their ancestors and heard what these people have to say about the slave trade, about colonization, about all of the negative things that white people and Europeans have committed against them throughout the entirety of our world's history, we would get very different stories than the ones that, are, that, are, that exist in our history books today. We would get disgusting, we would get heart-wrenching, and we would get very eye-opening stories that, again, we just, we just don't learn. Because history, predominantly and historically, is not told by the losers. History is only given by the winners. So, it's, again, it's very, very easy for history to be whitewashed. It's very, very easy for history to be deceptive when it's only told by the people who benefit on behalf of other people's suffering. The second quote. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. This one I feel is pretty self-explanatory, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but this one pretty much means that if we are unable to learn from, if we are unable to acknowledge, and if we are unable to remember our past, the good, the ugly, and the bad, all of it together, we will repeat it. We will repeat our mistakes. If we are unable to remember the atrocities of slavery, if we're unable to remember the atrocities of segregation, if we're unable to remember the stories of George Stinney Jr. and Emmett Till, they will continue to happen. And when those stories are not taught in school, it becomes much more likely that we're going to forget about them. And it, therefore, it becomes much more likely that they're going to happen again. And we're going to have more stories like George Stinney Jr. And we're going to have more stories like Emmett Till. And we're going to have more stories like the Central Park Five. If we are unable to acknowledge and learn from our past, which is done in educational settings, then we are going to be electing people to offices. We are going to be listening to people on our TVs. We are going to be accepting the word of people who are not acknowledging these events as real. And therefore, we are going to be much more likely to accidentally or on purpose commit them again. And history will not be kind to us. Finally, the last quote, when you are accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. This is probably one of my favorite quotes in regards to civil rights, not just for black people, but for all people. This quote is so prevalent and it's so it's just, it, I think that it's so credible, incredible and it speaks volumes to our American society as a whole. When you are accustomed to privilege and unable to recognize it, you don't see the signs of when your privilege is hurting other people. And like I said earlier, when I was talking about why we learn history, the third reason was to identify ourselves in our history when you whitewash your history, when you make it more digestible for white children, you prevent them from examining their own privilege and you prevent them from understanding the privilege that they've inherited because of the color of their skin. And I like this is this quote kind of has two sides to it because you know you have people who recognize their privilege and are just unwilling to get rid of it, or you have people that can't even recognize their privilege and they're not even willing to accept that white privilege is real. And how, how can you give up something when you don't even think of it as real? 
giving up privilege is very, very hard. Using your privilege to help up another group and using your privilege with the sole purpose of giving it away is very, very hard. Especially when everything in society is for you. We live in a society that was built for white men. And I have no shame in saying that. We, were, we live in a society that was built and founded on the rights of white men. The rights of white men to own women. The rights of white men to own land. The rights of white men to own slaves. All of that is the central core of American history. All of that is the central core of what the founding fathers wanted. And there's, again, like that, that's not, that shouldn't be a divisive thing to say because it's true. Every single signature on the constitution is of a white man. We live in a society that was built on the foundation of making sure that white men always get what they want. And as a white man in society, if you look at the society around you and say, all of this is built for me, why would I want to give that up? I, I, as much as I don't a appreciate or agree with that way of thinking, I understand it. It's, it's not comfortable and it's not nice to look at a world that was built for you and say, all right, well, now I have to give this up. People don't want to do that. That's not in our human instincts. So when, when equality is starting to be achieved and when the world around you is no longer suited for and built for your needs, but instead for the needs of everyone else, that can be a very, that can be like a, like a wet fish slap to the face. That can be a very brutal wake up call to realize that the world that has been catering to you, the world that was built for you, the society and the economies that were built for you are no longer just serving you anymore. That can feel oppressive, even though it's not. And we know it's not. It's, we know equality isn't oppressive. But when you're starting to have your privilege taken from you, and when you're starting to lose your privilege, again, that can be, that can be very alarming and that can be very overwhelming for people. And again, like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying that I accept or agree with that idea, but I'm saying I understand it. And I'm saying I, I understand that way of thinking and why people think like that. It's in our human instinct. We don't want to get rid of things that are easy for us. We don't want to get rid of things that will just make our lives harder or make someone else's lives easier that we don't like. That's not in our human nature. But as sentient beings, as humans, I feel like it's our responsibility to utilize our developed mind and utilize the the way we view with and interact with the world around us to be better. Overall, there are a million things that I want to say about this topic. There are a million stories that I want to give you guys, and there are a million experiences that I want to share about my own life, about why teaching racism in school and why teaching systemic racism and why teaching critical race theory in our schools and education systems is not only important, but also necessary to our growth as individuals and as a society. There are a million things I want to say right now, but given that I've already been talking for an hour and eight minutes, I think that... I, I need to wrap this episode up. I hope that I, I helped you guys see the other side of this today. I hope that I helped you guys understand why this, is, why this is important and why we need to not only facilitate and have conversations with one another that are important, but why we also need to bring these conversations into our classrooms. Because our world will not get better. Racism will not disappear. Sexism will not disappear. Homophobia will not disappear until those of us who are in power, until those of us who are in a place of privilege are willing to use our privilege to facilitate these conversations and to facilitate these conversations on behalf of those of us that we have privilege over. This week, it was a very long episode. It was a very in-depth episode, so... I'm, I'm not going to give you guys a, a recommendation this week. I'm not going to do the what's in my rotation this week just because, again, it was a really long episode. It was a very intense episode at times. So with that being said, I think I'm just going to wrap this week's episode up, tie it with a bow, and then send it on its way. If you enjoyed this week's episode, if you learned something, if, you, if it was insightful, or if you think someone else could learn something, please subscribe and follow for weekly episodes every Sunday. It not only makes sure that you have access to each episode I upload, but it also allows for more people who are just like you to find and enjoy this podcast as well. If you want more content from me, also be sure to follow me on all of my social media platforms. All of my handles are just at Jalen Tully. With all that being said, you guys, this week's episode is finally coming to a close. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm, I, I really hope you learned something. I really hope I helped open your mind or expand your mind. And even if you knew all of this, even if you agree with me on all of this, 
I hope I still gave you something to think about at the very least, or hopefully I also gave you some topics to broach with your family or broach with your teachers or your classmates about why this is important and why we all need to take steps towards making sure that we are creating a more fair and equitable society for everyone around us. Thank you so, so much for tuning in this week. Thank you for listening to what I have to say, and thank you for doing your part in making this world a better place. Always be sure to leave this episode and all of my episodes before now ready to educate often, learn freely, and always love equally. Take care of yourselves, and I'll talk to you guys next Sunday.